0: A short wave broadcast direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast
1: this moment in our history.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Our topic today is historical fiction, the process of turning history into story. What happens when a writer sets out to invent a narrative based on materials from the historical record? How does one balance the demands of the facts with the promptings of the imagination? What kinds of truth can fictional accounts elicit that non-fictional accounts cannot? And what happens when your materials are intensely personal, the stories of people to whom you're related? Emma Darwin is a novelist who is fascinated by the echoes of the past in the present. Her first book, The Mathematics of Love, juxtaposes the story of a wounded veteran of the Battle of Waterloo with that of a disaffected teenage girl in 1970s England. Her second novel, A Secret Alchemy, explores the mystery of the princes in the tower from the perspectives of their mother and guardian and also, centuries later, an historian who's out to chronicle their story. Her books have been translated into eight languages and nominated for multiple awards, and she's also a successful teacher and mentor, the author of a blog, The Itch of Writing, and of a how-to book for would-be historical novelists, getting started in historical fiction. In 2010, Emma Darwin began work on the novel that her friends, her readers, and especially her agent had expected her to write all along, the story of her illustrious family. Above all, her great-great-grandfather Charles. What followed, by her own account, was creative disaster, a writerly tangle of epic proportions, one that raised questions that went beyond her own circumstances about the nature of historical truth, the workings of the historical imagination, and the obligations a writer has to her subjects. In the end, the experience gave rise not to a novel, but to a newly published memoir titled This Is Not a Book About Charles Darwin. Emma Darwin spoke to me by Skype from her home in London. Hi, Emma.
1: Hi. Hi, Mary Beth.
0: Thanks so much for being here today.
1: Um, it's a pleasure.
0: I wanted to start by reading part of what I think is may still be or maybe until a couple of days ago was the the closing sentence on your Amazon author page and I think it was written several years ago after A Secret Alchemy was published Um, and it said Emma is the great great granddaughter of Charles Darwin and his wife Emma Wedgwood but has no plans at the moment to write about them so (laughs) so I wondered if you could if you could start there with that intuitive and, I think, very attractive reluctance. You come from a long line of very creative, very um, illustrious, very storied people. So so why not do the obvious and, and write a novel about them? What was it about the idea that gave you pause?
1: Well, um, and this is also a conversation that I had with my agent, yes. <laughs> agent. Um the thing is that well there's two things. One is that uh growing up we I wouldn't say I, I I'm not sure we were ever brought up in the sense of being told not to, but it, it absolutely wasn't something that we talked about unprompted to other people. Um, you know, if if, if if somebody uh said, Oh, Darwin, are you any relation? Quite often expecting one to say no. Um and you said, Well, yes, actually he was my Great, great grandfather, or whatever, um, and you just sort of said it quietly, and then you know you, that was fine. You responded to people's interest, but you never brought it up, um, and it was actually quite weird when my first novel, *The Mathematics of Love*, came out. That obviously it was something that that that, that my publisher wanted to um, you know to use for publicity purposes. It was definitely something that journalists latched onto because there's not very much to say about. And you know, here is someone you've never heard of who's written a book that you can't buy yet. You know, it doesn't make for much of a story, but of course the ancestor does make a story. And and I have the surname, and I get asked whether I bring it up or not. Um, so it, it kind of went against all my background of, of of not particularly drawing attention to it. The other reason is actually because um, they had a long and happy marriage, and happy marriages. Don't make good novels.
0: Actually um, it's so interesting. I'm just remembering now that um, I don't know if you know the, the, the writer Phyllis Rose's book Parallel Lives, Five Victorian I know Marriages. Of it, yes. And yep. she says in her afterword that she she had she'd initially included this is right. Yeah. Um, Charles and Emma as one of her marriages. And she had to discard them because they were too happy.
1: I didn't I didn't know that. I <laughs> yes. must look that up because that, that it becomes extremely relevant. So I, I think the other thing is simply that um, what is they are so extraordinarily well documented. You know, there are now two biographies of Emma. Goodness knows how many how many books there are about Charles. And um, uh, where is the space for me yes. as a novelist? And I mean, I thank you, by the way, for looking me up on Amazon, because you've reminded me that I really must update that because, of course, um, since then, what happened was that I did start trying to write a novel about my family, not about them, um, but looking for somewhere else to, to find. And it was a creative disaster. Yes. And I ended up getting very ill. And out of that, I have grown the novel that I've got coming out on Darwin Day, the of, The, the not novel, the creative nonfiction, I should say, that I've got coming out on Darwin Day, the uh, 12th of February, which is called This is Not a Book About Charles Darwin. Because he was, the, when looking for, you know, for fiction that I could grow out of a piece of my family, they were the one pair that I never, ever considered using for fiction <laughs>
0: yes so so i mean this is well first of all i think maybe it might be helpful for our listeners uh to hear just some of the threads that you went down which which involves you know a little bit more talking about your family but how ex- I think it was a um a revelation to me how exceptionally um uh, illustrious they turned out to be and how many storied lives you had to choose from.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, just just yesterday, the Royal Society, um, you know, the, scientific, the great scientific body, uh, happened to tweet that this day in eighteen whatever it was, uh, a young Charles Darwin was made a fellow of the Royal Society. You know, which is the great distinguished sort of scientific body of the world almost. Um, and in fact, he was the fourth generation of Darwin to be an FRS. Um, his great-grandfather was one um, his great-grandfather discovered the first marine reptile a plesiosaur which is now in the in in something i'm going to get this date wrong now it's something like 1717 17 or 1720 um, and it's now in the natural history museum in london and you can go and admire it um, and uh, and several of charles darwin's sons were made frs and One of his grandsons, my grandfather, who was a physicist, was also a fellow of the Royal Society, Um, and they were married into married into the Wedgwoods at several points, Um, and so it's and they were part of uh, part of the uh, group of of scientists and manufacturers who who called themselves the Lunar Society in the late 18th century. Um, Jenny Uglow's wonderful group biography of them is 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 called the Lunar Men, and it's subtitled. The, the men who made the Industrial Revolution, which is pretty nearly true. Uh, people like Josiah Wedgwood, Matthew um, Matthew Bolton and James Watt, who built all the steam engines that pumped out all the mines and ran all the factories and all the rest of it, and that kind of thing. Um, so, yes, it's, and, and, and as is the way in any group of people, they all tended to marry each other. Um, just as, you know, anyone in a small town marries each other and, and so on. It's just, it's a mental town rather than a physical one. Um, and so yes, Charles's mother was a, was a daughter of the first Josiah Wedgwood, um, and he married his first cousin Emma, um, who was the son of the second, who was the daughter of the second Josiah, and and they went on marrying each other in in really rather disastrously. Um, Charles thought when his children were sick, he worried about inbreeding, mm-hmm. um, though the 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 um, geneticist. Adam Rutherford reassured me that actually it's it's really not that bad especially compared to the Habsburgs (laughs) (laughs) there is apparently a coefficient of inbreeding which he has applied to the family tree and decided it's really not all that much to be worried about (laughs) but yeah so I had this immensely rich material um and and Charles's grandchildren my grandfather's generation um were very involved with the. All the Bloomsbury's and and all that lot. Um, my uh, my great aunt Gwen Ravera, who was a, an artist, uh, who more or less revived the the art of wood engraving, um, and she wrote a lovely memoir called Period Peace about growing up in Cambridge, where she was brought up, and all the all her Charles's sons who had children all grew up. So there was a sort of pack of cousins in Cambridge, um, and she illustrated it, and it was published in 1950 one i think and uh, has never been out of print so and it's full of all the stories that we all grew up on about what uh, about what it was like so i had this immense body of mem- lots of memoirs um you know lots of lots of books about um and uh, it was simultaneously very rich but also quite difficult to when i did decide to try and write write a novel about them it it did sometimes feel like you know there was no space for my imagination yes. Yes. Every sorry, go on.
0: No, no, no. That's 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 exactly what I wanted to 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 ask you about was this concept of story space, which yes. which you mentioned throughout the throughout the book. And you you said it earlier about you know that there's just so much documentation about Emma and Charles that that was out of the question from from the outset. And you were looking for this for these for space in the record for you to thrive. And I wondered if you could could say a bit more about that that experience of 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 going through materials and trying to find those kind of niches for your own creativity
1: well i th- i mean i think it's um you're looking for there's there's different things you need when you need to write a novel um and one of them is uh, the writer's shorthand is normally conflict though that tends to make it sound like everyone's having fist fights all the time which which isn't necessarily the case but it's basically you know, you need your characters to act, to, to do things from desire or necessity. And then you need, you know, if they get to do it and it all works fine, then you haven't got a story. Um, it, it only makes a story if things get in the way and they have to get around them. And and of course, it's not that, you know, the people in my family tree didn't encounter that. But on the whole, they they were, you know, they had most of them had enough money. Most the most of them were. Basically, kind, liberal with a small L, um, you know, kind, well intentioned, doing their best, reasonably ethical, um, uh, always wanting to make things be okay. And you know, it was actually really difficult to find any drama.
0: <laughs> see what I mean? But I, that is, it's so interesting, I think. I mean, I I, I I underscored that section of the book and kept going back to it and thinking about it this fact that all the members of your family in these different lines, you know, you end up with actually these really reasonable, rational people. And so, so I wonder if there's, I mean, what does that suggest about what fiction and and not just reasonable, but the kind of people that, you know, it would be wonderful that they if they were at the helm of, of, of all arms of government in the world.
1: So- <laughs> well some of them were they did I mean, you know, some of them especially on the Wedgwood side, there were a lot of Wedgwood MPs and and um and and uh, Josiah Wedgwood, the the fourth Josiah Wedgwood, who became Baron Wedgwood, and he was a fantastic figure. Um he was he was one he was I mean the uh, counter to that is is they were I mean, the family were always Whigs in the in the proper eighteenth-century sense of of sort of being uh, uh, sort of automatically against the ruling bodies and classes, if you like. Um, and he obviously was one of those person. If, if there was a cause that everybody was against, he was for it. So he was a tremendous Zionist um, and very in favour of Indian independence. In the, you know, in Edwardian times, which was which was n- not a common position. Um And that sort of thing, so he was sort of just naturally again, which I found very pleasing <laughs> but yes they 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 are and it 's and actually i mean it, it's it's a fantastic world to grow up in, but it is difficult to make a novel i think the other the other real problem I met, which in in a way was much more much more serious i'm sure I could have you know I might have found some drama somewhere if I really wanted to, is that they are. They are, you know, they're the children of Rousseau. They, they, they think about, they think about themselves, and they write letters to each other. They write memoirs and biographies. You know, we have all their letters either stashed away in the Wedgwood archive, or, or of course the whole Darwin correspondence project, which is all in Cambridge. Um, they, they think about the insides of their heads, and insides of heads is what fiction does. You know, film can't do it. Not really. It can just show you faces. Um, uh, other, other things, uh, uh, other forms, drama can't really do its stage, but it's prime territory for fiction. And in terms of writing historical fiction about real historical characters, um, it, it's what we can do that historians can't. You know, historians can't decide to tell us what's what Elizabeth Woodfill is thinking. That's the job for a novelist. Um, because we're saying, okay, this is this is plausible. This is very similitude. This is this is invention, um, and that's you know that's some of my natural territory in writing fiction. But these so and so's they write reams of letters to each other, <laughs> analysing their motivations, talking about how they feel and what they do. Um, it's partly just they're the letter writing generation, you know that. that, that it, you know they're born in the time when the post really gets going um and and you get things like um the the philosopher and historian julia wedgwood who's always called snow but she hated being called snow so i tried to call her julia um you know she had a a a a very passionate partly epistolary uh almost pretty much a love affair with robert browning after he was widowed you know and that's because there were four posts a day and they could whiz notes to each other like we'd whiz emails or whatsapps or whatever um that was one of the she was one of the people i did consider making a novel about um but and it and it and it was difficult to make work for other reasons but but so again that territory that ought to have been where my imagination could run every time it started to run um a piece of you know the kind of historian piece of my brain was saying yes but can you are you allowed to is that legitimate is it is it accurate all those things that historians very properly have to worry about um and it always felt like somebody sort of slapping a hand across my mouth and saying no you can't speak
0: how much of that was because these people were related to you if you had been coming if you were not related do you think you would have found story space there
1: uh, if if there had been as much material, and of course you know there are dozens of families you know who who are also as well documented as that, um, I think I still would have had that problem, and I recognise it's my problem. I even had it with Elizabeth Woodville, who's you know who about who, the insides of whose head we know nothing, um, simply because I I I was going to be a historian till I was 16, and then I did well A levels over here, you know the kind of 16 to 18 uh, level where where at least in in our school system, you specialize quite drastically. When I was at school, you only did three subjects. And I did history, and it kind of went wrong on me. And I ended up not doing it at university, which is what I had expected to do since I could read, was to be a research historian. And um, instead, I read drama, which was actually a much better training for a novelist. But I think it's the authority of the person who has the facts. and that, And that, in a way, I do think came from the atmosphere that I grew up in. One of the worst insults you could say about anyone you met, apart from the fact that they were horrid, um, was that they can't—they couldn't argue. They can't argue. They don't know when a point is proved. They don't know how to make a point. They don't know when they've lost the argument. Uh, I mean, my father was not a scientist, though all his brothers were. But he was a lawyer. He was a barrister by training. And my mother was an English teacher, but her father was an academic. And the idea that basically. You, you know, argument not in the sense of having a row, but in the sense of points and evidence and proved and persuading people. And the person who has less good evidence or constructs their argument less well loses. They've lost it. Yes. They've lost the argument. And that was absolutely fundamental to how I grew up. My father's family, who, who were a bigger family um, and, you know, slightly you know, lived in a bigger house, and they had a category of book which was called a dining room book, which was basically all the dictionaries and encyclopedias and books that settle dining table arguments. Now we didn't have, you know, our dining table only got broken out when there were too many people to sit around the kitchen <laughs> table for supper. But, 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 but that 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 idea that that one of the functions of talking to each other among the family is to is to is to wrangle things till you achieve a, a result that everybody agrees on um is is really fundamental and the problem i faced with with the amount of information you know data if you like that i had it, you know there were so many you know there's gwen wrote period pieces also a biography of her gwen's sister margaret married Geoffrey Keynes, the 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 very distinguished surgeon who was also the world expert on blake and whose brother was john maynard Keynes, the uh the economist and so on and they all knew. They all knew the Bloomsburys, and and were indeed connected through several marriages to, to um, Virginia Woolf and Vanessa Bell and all that lot. Um, and and so there were so many people who 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 knew more than me, and to whose authority okay. I had to bow, or I felt I had to bow. Yes. That in a the sense they were they had more data than me, so I could not say I don't care if you see what I mean. It would, it would be like someone now, you know, faced with unarguable evidence about, um, you know, should we say the disastrousness of Brexit? Um, you know, if somebody says, I don't care that your facts are right, I still believe what I believe, we get furious with them.
0: So it's this balancing act then that is is the case for any historical novelist, not just one writing about her family, between a sense of accuracy and a sense and and the um latitude for invention and and what when is invention permissible? are there things that it's not permissible to invent
1: mm. I think um well, given that we have such a thing as um the historical fiction and of fantasy if you like you know there there's 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 historical fiction which is. Uh, I'm thinking of something like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell or, or, or the kind of fantasy which is very rooted in a real historical world or, or certain certain parts of um, Cloud Atlas, say. Uh, what I believe very strongly and I always say to my students is that it's your book, your rules. The, your, rela- your book's relationship to the historical record is completely up to you. But what you have to do is A, work some work out for yourself so that it's consistent, because I think readers get that, you know, even if it's a world that looks awfully like Jane Austen's England, except it has magic, or except it's a, or the sort of counterfactual ones, you know what what if what if Germany had won the second world War and 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 the Reich had ended up running Britain, you know, and so on. When you read that kind of thing, um, the world is a very recognizably 1940s world. It's just the one thing is different. Um, and so you can do what you like, but you have to do two things. One is make sure that you make it work and it's consistent within the novel. But the other is to teach the reader what the rules of your world are. Uh, just as you know, anyone doing straight out science fiction or fantasy, you know, they call it world building, and it's a whole thing that that forums are dedicated, writers <laughs> forums are dedicated to. You know, we have to build our world too. And one of the things you have to do is to. Get the reader to understand that and to go with it, and to persuade them. And when you're doing historical fiction, you have to bear in, you know, bear in mind and take into account what they already know, what they already believe, what you can persuade them to buy into for now. And and some of that is going to be straight, basic historical facts. I mean, if you've, you know, we've got London down in the southeast, southeast England. Manchester is by car four hours drive away. Um, I can't remember what the figure is, but I think it's about 300 miles. It's actually probably not a good idea to build your plot on the idea that you can um, walk it in an hour. Nobody's going to go with you with that one. (laughs) On the other hand, there's, there's probably nothing to stop you inventing a city halfway between the two and and readers will probably go quite happily with that as long as you again you introduce them so so it is about making your own rule book i think take bearing in mind what you can persuade readers to go with, go along with and there is there's a whole sort of tacit there's a tacit agreement that nobody ever articulates about what it's okay to invent and and, and what it isn't you know where you can invent you can't really move london to scotland but you can perfectly well slot a borough in that doesn't really exist, I think a lot of people, would, a lot of writers would feel. Um, and, uh, but, and, and you know, maybe there's a sort of ethical system that we all are not bothering to acknowledge about. what What's kind of, what are the main pillars of our geography or history that you can't shift? Yes. Most of us would feel you couldn't invent a monarch or a new president of the United States.
0: Yes, I mean... I- I I wonder if part of the question that this this gets at around invention and accuracy, and you say at one point in, in, in the memoir that, you know, everybody, including yourself, feels entitled to say when someone gets it wrong, when a historical novelist gets it wrong, and that getting it wrong... Um, you know, is not just a matter of getting the facts wrong, but something about getting the tone wrong, getting, you know, putting thoughts into the mind of an 18th century character that wouldn't have been there, putting conceptions about, you know, sexual identity or whatever into the mind of someone in the 15th century, whatever, that those kinds of things jump out. But I think what's also underlying this is this question of what historical fiction is actually for. You know wh- yes. why? Why bother setting a novelist if you're going to make it up? If that's what you want to do, why bother setting it in the past? And and I mean, I'd be interested in hearing you speak about that personally, as well as in terms of you know more generally about novelists, because you've said, you know, you wanted to be a historian as a, as as a child, and then and then moved towards a much more imaginative route. And is there, you know, do you still feel there's this some um, some of that impulse that drove you as a child is still there in your in your writing. It's just taken
1: its its proper form. Yes, I th- I think absolutely. I mean, you know, if all you want to do is make it up, then 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 you go down the the, the, the fantasy and 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 speculative fiction route, where where you've got a lot more freedom, um, and and I don't in the least mean that in a pejorative way. I I, I mean, I think it's you know, in, in, it's it's amazing territory to to explore things in um and i don't want to do that because i think you know part of what excited me as a child and as a teenager and still i mean i still read a good third to half of what i read is non you know is non-fiction by which i don't mean creative non-fiction i mean you know non-non-fiction um and most of that is history Mm -hmm. um mostly written you know Good history written for the non-specialist. What, if you want to be rude about it, you'd call popular history. Except I never think that's at all fair. Um, you know that that doesn't convey just how good it is. Um, but I th- and so I think you know when you're writing historical fiction, you are trying to say something about the past. Yeah, because otherwise you'd say this, you know, this isn't set in any world that ever happened. And and that's why. Again, I think we we all do have an underlying sense of, of, of what you can change and it'll still in some way make us feel that we're inhabiting that past world, make us understand the otherness of it as well as the sameness of it. Because I think that's – with any fiction that you set not in your own present time or the reader's present time and place, at, at heart I think what you're doing is you're saying – you're exploring what is contingent about human nature and what is perennial. You're saying uh, humans are always human, and yet our experience is so shaped by the world we find ourselves in, and which which so shaped by how we grew up. And a lot of that is invisible to us. I mean, you you were talking about it, we were talking about um, how. Uh, Uh, getting it wrong, you know, getting the facts wrong. But actually every generation thinks that it knows what the facts are and every generation only sees them through their own glasses. Um, and, And we should, I think we should be more humble about our assumptions about what the facts are and what they're not. I mean, clearly if there are stumps of a castle somewhere, then that castle probably was there and not many people are going to argue. But particularly things like our assumptions about sexuality, um and and sort of manners and mores and how people saw things and felt about things are much more contingent on our own view than we think they are And, and very often seen through a victorian lens i think a 19th century lens because we're looking through the first professionalization of history um That's that's by the by, I I think. um, So I think, yes, you are trying to say something about a historical time and place. And even if you don't have real historical characters in your story, you are trying to say in some sense, this is something that could really have happened. I'm not saying it did, but it could have. It fits. Um, It is Plausible. I'm creating a world that is very similar, um, and so you you're going to have to watch out for things that will break that contract with the reader. In in um, his book The Art of Fiction, John Gardner, who who taught at the um, very very famous Iowa Writers' Workshop for many years, um, he talks about the contract between read the contract of fiction between reader and writer. And the reader's side of the contract is that they will agree to forget that none of this ever happened for the you know for the duration of reading the book they will they will go with as if um, and the writer's side of that is that they will deal honestly and truthfully with honestly and responsibility responsibly I think is the quote honestly and responsibly with the reader which means I think it's a kind of ethical, uh, I think there's a sense of ethics in, in, in that you are trying to tell your story for for kind of good and honest and honourable reasons. But I think it's also something about truth to facts um, in the sense that you are, what you are putting on the page is there for good reasons. And the thing that happens when when a reader stumbles on something which they know is historically wrong, or they think it's historically wrong, because readers aren't always right. Don't forget. Um, I think what happens is that that contract has a little wobble. It, it, it shakes the reader's faith in the in the writer, and therefore it shakes their trust and their willingness and ability to go along with you. As you know, to 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 suspend disbelief is the traditional phrase um because they're beginning to that that willingness to say okay this is this is this is living and breathing like a real historical world i'm going to go with it even though i know perfectly well that this stuff never actually happened it begins to shake if it stops feeling like a real historical world they get impatient it's a bit like somebody reading a crime novel if the means of murder is something that actually is completely implausible you know, you, you might go on because you're still quite amused by the detective and it's going to be quite fun to see what happens. But but, you know, there is a way in which you are less engaged with the story and less willing to keep going with it because because something quite fundamental about the action of the story has has just wouldn't happen.
0: So I, I have a question that I'd like to ask you really on behalf of our historian listeners there, um, because probably every historian I know, myself included, has had the experience of being in an archive and coming across some fragment, maybe a court case or photograph or a newspaper article or a testimony, and it just grabs you, um, often because it, it just invites Maybe it's got that, it seems to have that story DNA that you talk about. It has this space in it. It has something, some unfinished business there. And it invites you to imagine your way into, often, into the margins of the historical record, the voices, experiences that, that you know, that did not leave documentation behind them. And you think to yourself, there's a story in this, or there's a novel in this. And then if you're, um, you know, if you've got an academic training that might be where you stop because you simply think you don't have the tools. So for someone in that position, what advice would you give if they actually want to to take first steps towards finding towards excavating that that story? Maybe that's not even the right metaphor.
1: Uh, but towards developing it, assuming yes. that you, you don't have all that much yes. real material. Yes, yes. Um, I think I I would say, first of all, cool. Call it a novel and then do what you like. (laughs) But I I, I actually fully acknowledge that that isn't actually particularly helpful. Um, I think think one thing is to say, okay, yes, this is a different form. um, And it's probably, you're going to have to invent some things in the spaces. I think thinking in terms of writing in the spaces is quite useful. Um, and I, I, the other thing I would suggest is that anyone wanting to do that gets hold of a, an article by Margaret Atwood called In Search of Alias Grace, um, which was – it was originally a lecture, um, but it was published, and I can't give you the reference, but I know it's accessible through all the – all the. Um, all the, uh, you know, the usual places you find academic articles. And in, in that, you know, because the story of Alias Grace is, is based on a real historical story, a real historical crime, and quite a well-documented one in the sense that it, we have, you know, it was the, it was a ser- servant, Grace, who murdered her employees, employer. And um, she was tried, so there's all the trial records. And later she dictated her own story to a journalist when, when she was in prison, because she wasn't hung because she was so young. And uh, Atwood talks about uh, how she, what she decided, uh, you know, that she could do with this body of material, which on the one hand, there was quite a lot. On the other hand, a lot of it was quite unreliable because, as she says, Grace had a tremendous, uh, you know, a tremendous drive to tell her story, but also a tremendous drive to conceal. And what as a novelist you can do and not do. And obviously, trial records are immensely valuable sources for any historian, but but they do put a particular slant on things, and and I know that historians reckon that you you know you have to use them quite carefully and quite critically in some ways, and so she talks about everything to do with her decisions about what she could, you know, what she could do and what she could invent, and I'm not going to quote this right now, but she says um, something about that she had decided that anything that was written down in any source, she could use, and but she mustn't, and she mustn't change. But that still left some good big spaces where she, which she could fill with invention, um, so that she never actually contradicts any of the sources. Um, And I think, I think I'm remembering right in saying that she, Uh, also decided that if, you know, if two sources contradicted each other, then she could pick whichever was more useful for her. That is certainly, if anyone said to me, I've got two sources that contradict each other, you know, how do I decide which to use? I'd say, well, whichever makes the better story. (laughs) You know, you're not being a historian. Your job is not to decide, um, you know, to, to do a historian's job of deciding which is more, you know, which is more likely to be true. Um, your unless you want to uh your job is to make a story that works for somebody who wants to read a story and that in the end is what matters i think the other thing i would be careful about and this this maybe is slightly slightly tangential but i do because i you know i mentor and i work with i work with aspiring writers and indeed published writers who, who have got stuck um and i think a dangerous thing if you're coming at it from if you're coming at what you want to write from the kind of historical angle as it were i think there is always danger in having too strong an agenda i think it's great to have an agenda if this is a fascinating personality in a fascinating world and i want to bring it alive and that's that's a very powerful reason to write a historical novel i think if you're trying to prove something in the kind of historian sense I think what you end up is you end up with a novel that's very didactic. Um, and it's, it's a sense in, in a sense, you're kind of, it's, it's the, the, it's the tail wagging the dog, if that makes any sense. You know, the agenda starts controlling what should be in the story and what shouldn't. Um, and I think that can, I think it's Coleridge. I could be wrong. Who says, uh, that we, we mistrust that writing that, 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 um, seems to want to persuade us too hard that has, that has an agenda we would say now you know that's trying to preach or educate and it, that that's their it's overt purpose yeah because readers love learning but they don't want to know they're doing it right <laughs> they don't brilliant. want to feel taught they want to learn but they don't want to feel taught that makes sense
0: that's fantastic um i had a couple of of, of final questions for you really and 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 the first one was about um just how you look back now on this experience of you know starting out writing a, a, a novel and, and and ending up with a, with a work of creative nonfiction with a, with a memoir. Um, years ago, I read an an essay by a, a historian called George Stocking, which is about um, unfinished books. he's He's a historian of anthropology, so it was really about anthropologists who found themselves unable to finish what was supposed to be their great magnum opus. And he argues that usually, what well, always, what was at stake was not just them, it was a shift in their thinking, a uh, shift maybe in the fields thinking. And, and I thought about this when I finished your, your memoir about whether, whether you would say now that attempting to write this, this book as fiction in any way changed your thinking or reflected a a growth in your thinking about either fiction or history or the relation between
1: them that's very interesting I think it I think it basically taught me that I personally shouldn't try and write fiction about real historical characters (laughs) Which I'd kind of known, I'd found it very hard with Elizabeth Woodville and Anthony Woodville, you know, and, and they're five centuries ago and we know nothing about the insides of their heads whatsoever. And there are acres, you know, there's acres of stuff in the record, you know, spaces where we don't know where they were or anything. And even that I found hard because I found this this sense that there was an authoritative historical truth, which I could not argue with, um, very limiting. So and that, I think that was partly my personal difficulty and it was when I realized that my that difficulty had come out of the same educational background that was why that you know that was what I was trying to write about that I finally gave up on the novel because I realized the impossibility was built into the project I wasn't just being useless or stupid or hadn't found the answer or hadn't got enough help with it or anything else you know, anything, You know any of which can feel like the problem with other novels that I've had patches of being stuck with. But it was built into the project. And then I was able to let go and say, I understand, I will never be able to do this. But uh, normally I'm extremely stubborn with novels. You know, if there's any hope that I could find out what I need to do to make it work, I cannot leave it alone. I can't just say, oh, no, that's too difficult. I going to put it away. I think I also... Realised that. Well, actually, to be honest, I also realised how exciting this whole creative non-fiction thing is, Um, which I wasn't so much a thing before. When I was, I'd always sort of vaguely wondered about writing about the family, but I thought I'm a novelist. That that's how, of course, that's how I do it. I don't know how you do anything else. But things like Hair with Amber Eyes, things like H is for Hawk, um, all these really fascinating projects. All of which have very different forms, they have very, um, they each one has to kind of make its own form for itself. And, and one thing that happened when I started writing, This is Not a Book About Charles Darwin, was that because in creative nonfiction there are so few rules and every book has to decide its own rules for itself, it was incredibly free because I could just. I could just decide how I wanted to do it. And I also could sort of talk to the reader. And there's a bit in there when when um, I said something, you know, I've moved on to another chunk of the family and I've, said, and I've said something along the lines of, but if I actually wrote the way I kind of scrambled around in the family tree, banging my knees and falling off branches and all the rest of it, you'd get as bored and disheartened as I did. So here's the next generation in order... <laughs> And I just sort of listed them with just, you know, with a little bit about each one. So the reader knew who they were, but I didn't have to try and weave it into a story. I didn't have to try and turn it into something with a a plot that adds up, um, that the engineering works. And I'd always regarded the novel as a lovely, great, big, capacious, baggy monster of a beast that you could put all sorts of things in compared to the tightness, say, of a stage play form um, or, or let alone a movie script. And I'd always thought of novels rather free and open and suddenly I saw y- your sort of classic novel as incredibly tight and incredibly restricted in what it could be. And that was quite a, a revelation to yes. think that, that actually that, that it's unless you're going to do something extraordinarily experimental um, and kind of break you know and play break with and play all the, the, all the readers' assumptions about what a novel's trying to do and what satisfactions. It's trying to provide, because I think that's a very useful way to think about genres and forms. Actually, is, you know, what satisfactions are you offering the reader? Um, and 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 it was it was amazingly freeing. I've, I've I had a very strong image just when I was beginning to plan this. is not a book about Charles Darwin, of instead of trying to build a a beautiful house with all the electrics and drains and everything all hidden behind, you know, chiselled into the walls and plastered over and hidden under the floor and hidden in the roof and hidden in the basement, I suddenly thought, oh, look, I get to write the Pompidou Centre. I can have all my drains on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I need some escalators, I'll just bang
0: them on the outside. <laughs> it's actually a really wonderful story, the, the, the story of the story of this book. For any writer in any medium who, on the face of it, fails to bring a, a project uh, to, to fruition, because this is this is about um, a kind of, of writerly resilience, or so about a, an ability to re to step back and reframe and figure out what the story actually is, which may exist on a completely different plane, which is what which is what it seems like you did.
1: Yes, I think uh, my my um, the agent who I had for for ten years. Um, had a way when something wasn't... She was a very, very distinguished editor before she was an agent, and she had a way when something in one of my novels wasn't working. And she would say, well, what were you trying to do? And I would start saying, well, I was trying to do this and trying to do that. And she would listen, and then after a while, she would come up with a a really sort of off at an angle, but a, a really creative other thing, other way of achieving the same aim. And... I think that's, that's, it's very difficult to, you know, I spent three years trying to write a novel, you know, trying to put the family into novel form. And, and it was only when I stepped away from it, and thought, well, uh, well, what were you trying to do? And the answer was, I was interested in the family, I was trying to, I went on being interested in the family, that was what one of the things that kept me going on the novel so long, when all my friends were saying, "Look, Emma, you're miserable and you're hating it. Why don't you just stop?" <laughs> and I would so mop my eyes and say, "Yes, but it's really interesting." I would also say, "Yes, but I can sell it, of course." Um, but but and and I, and I went on being interested, and and so and then i realized that what i had to do was to find a different form for my interest um and and i did try you know because my first degree was drama i tried a stage play and that didn't work and i tried a radio play because those were forms i was a bit familiar with and and that didn't work either partly just because i'm a real beginner you know and it was a complicated project wasn't something to cut your teeth on um and so it was about and and then i thought well actually i'm I'm interested in them in a non-fiction way. It needs to be non-fiction, okay. And actually, this is where I drew on my experience of working with academic writing, because one of the one of the things I've done, the, the Royal Literary Fund, which is a charity that supports writers here, it puts writers into universities as fellows to help specifically with academic writing. And it's one-to-one help of the sort that a lot of universities find very difficult to provide. And I had a lovely time doing that, playing with everybody's subjects. And, and the basic question was always, what is the spine of your essay? What is the organising principle? What is the reader's journey through the topic? And, I, and it was actually it was that that made me think, OK, what would the spine of a non-fiction book about the family be that isn't just a tiny, you know, whole string of little biographies because that would be boring. And, you know, most of the family aren't that interesting. <laughs> There are some who are very interesting. What you know? What what is my way through the family? And that was when the idea of it being a writer's journey came up, because the spine could be the story of me looking at the family and then trying to write about them and what happened, and that could be the organising principle. And and yes, yeah, so so in a sense, it came about from lots of different bits of my life, which which I drew on or realized i was drawing, or drawing on as i tried to think about that and i think that's one of the keys to resilience in in a funny way you know it's not that you don't ever end up face down in the arena as brene brown puts it um in daring greatly but but it's that you can find things from lots of different angles to help yourself get up again and and certainly that's what that's what happened That's what happened with this one.
0: Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Emma, for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's been really interesting. It's it's lovely talking to... Not that many people have read the book yet, so it's really good to talk to someone who has.
0: Many thanks to Emma Darwin for taking part in this conversation. Her memoir, This Is Not a Book About Charles Darwin, is published by Holland House Books. Thanks to the staff of the Ohio State University Digital Union, where I recorded this podcast. Please visit our website, www.historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.